Welcome to the Unitarian Church of Los Alamos and this video worship for Sunday, February 28th, 2021. Thank you for welcoming us into your homes today and welcome here into our home in this backup worship space we are in as we finish up some renovations in the sanctuary. As Unitarian Universalists, we affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of all people and gather together in a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. Whoever you are, whomever you love, wherever you are at this minute, wherever you are on your life's journey, you are welcome to be a part of this community. I invite you, especially if you are coming to us for the first time through these video worship services, to connect with us on Facebook, through our fan page, and through our virtual fellowship hall group. Take a moment to sign the virtual guest book so we could reach out to you. And as always, email me with any questions you might have about our community. The links for all of those can be found in the service notes below. We are glad you're with us today, even at this distance. And we look forward to seeing your face again soon.
It is not by chance that you arrived here today. You have been looking for something larger than yourself. Inside of you, there is a yearning, a calling, a hope for more, a desire for a place of belonging and caring. Through your struggles, someone nurtured you into being, instilling a belief in a shared purpose, a common yet precious resource that belongs to all of us when we share. And so you began seeking a beloved community, a people that does not put fences around love, a community that holds its arms open to possibilities of love, a heart home to nourish your soul and share your gifts. Welcome home. Welcome to worship. For each child that's born, a morning star rises and sings to the universe who we are. For each child that's born, a morning star rises and sings to the universe who we are. For each child that's born, a morning star rises and sings to the universe who we are. For each child that's born, a morning star rises and sings to the universe who we are. We are our grandmother's prayers, and we are our grandfather's dreamings, and we are the breath of our ancestors. We are the spirit of God. We are mothers of courage. Fathers of time, daughters of dust, and the sons of great visions, we're sisters of mercy, brothers of love, lovers of life, and the builders of nations, we're seekers of truth, keepers of faith, makers of peace, and the wisdom of ages, we are our grandmother's prayers. of courage, fathers of time, daughters of dust, and the sons of great visions, we're sisters of mercy, brothers of love, lovers of life, and the builders of nations, we're seekers of truth, and keepers of faith, we are makers of peace, and the wisdom of ages, we are our grandmother's prayers. We, we are our grandfather's dreamings, and we are the breath of our ancestors. We are the spirit of God. We are our grandmother's prayers, and we are our grandfather's dreamings. We Because we are the spirit of God. 
Love is the doctrine of this church, the quest for truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve life in fellowship, to the end that all souls shall grow in harmony, thus do we covenant with each and with all. For all our joys, all our sorrows, whether we share them aloud or hold them close to our hearts. Let us be together in a moment of silence. Please join with me now in a spirit of prayer and reflection. Eternal and beloved, gracious source of all life and all love, we come together grateful for the time out of time which we are setting apart so that we might become more fully present to ourselves, to our communities, to that which we call holy. May our joys be celebrated together, our wounds be healed together, our hearts be opened together. Spirit of life who draws us together in a web of holy relationships, make your presence known with us and in us and among us. Remind us that we are not alone in history. Ignite us with the courage of the living tradition. Remind us that we are not alone in entering the future. Anchor us with patience and perseverance. Remind us that we are not alone in our times of grief and pain. Comfort us with your spirit, manifest in human hands and voices. Remind us that we are not alone in joy and in wonder. Inspire us to honor and extend the beauty we find in this world. Divine music of the universe, let our hearts beat in diverse and harmonious rhythms cooperating with an everlasting dance of love. May we move with the rhythms of peace. May we move with the rhythms of compassion. May we move with the rhythms of justice. 
source of stars and planets and water and land. Open our hearts to all of our neighbors. Open our souls to a renewal of faith. Open our hands to join together in the work ahead. All this we pray in the names of those known and unknown, present and absent, remembered and forgotten, in the names of all the helpers of humankind. Amen. guys so in our uu church and in our uu classes with our friends we make these things called covenants or promises to each other of how we would like to treat each other some of you may have remembered making those covenants before and here is an example of one of these UU covenants that our middle schoolers have made with each other. And they have written some promises to each other, like treat others as they want to be treated. I will be kind to myself and others and practice self-care. I will listen with an open mind and heart. I will respect people's personal space and their privacy. I'll have fun. So these are some of the promises that our middle school class made with each other of how they want to act and treat each other. 
So what happens if somebody in our group accidentally breaks one of these promises? What happens then? What do you think we should do if this happens? So let's use the covenant promise that I talked about last week in our Time for All Ages message that a lot of our Unitarian Universalist youth use together. Be a croissant, not a donut. This promise to be a croissant, not a donut, means to be open and inclusive to all people when we are together. So here is an example of that covenant promise in action. You are playing duck, duck, goose with your friends at our UU church. And a new kid walks up and asks, can I play duck, duck, goose with you? Your reaction might be, no, I don't know you, and I am only playing with my friends. The kid then walks away, feeling sad and not included, and feels a little hurt. You might not have meant to hurt the kid, but the kid walks away feeling a little hurt. So by accident, and not on purpose, one of the promises we made on our covenant to be a croissant and not a donut, and to be open and inclusive to all people, that promise was broken. So how do we repair a broken promise? The first thing I do when I break a promise is apologize. Maybe I found out that the person I didn't include in our duck, duck, goose circle was feeling sad. I would then go up to that person and say, I'm sorry. I might then invite that person to play the duck, duck, goose game with us and correct my mistake. This shows with an action that I am correcting my mistake. It shows the person I care about their feelings and do want them to be included in our group. So, it's as easy as one, two, three. I apologize. I correct my mistake, 
by my actions, I learn from my mistake, even if it was an accident. I will learn to hopefully not make that mistake again and do better next time. So remember, it's as easy as one, two, three. Apologize, correct mistakes with actions, and learn from our mistakes. This is one way you can help fix a broken promise or covenant. Our reading this morning comes to us from Charles W. Green, a professor of psychology and leader of the Race in America curriculum taught at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. I was talking with a physician recently, a specialist, really good at his work and a darn nice guy. He asked me about a book I was reading on health disparities by race and class and then commented, that's really interesting, but come to think of it, all my patients are white. He's been practicing medicine for 20 years or so, and from what I could see, the conversation was the first time he'd thought about the racial makeup of his patient population. He works in a county in which 25% of the population is not white, and he draws patients from all over. People of color are just as likely as whites to need his particular services. Like most of us, however, he'd never stopped to think about the people who weren't there, the ones not sitting in his waiting room, and therefore he'd never wondered why. One of my goals for my Race in America students is that by the end of the term they will notice who is and isn't in the room, or the school, or the church, or the board meeting, or the doctor's office, and then ask why. Once you notice who isn't in the room and begin to ask why, you can get some very interesting answers. 
Segregation, like other aspects of racism, is deeply embedded in organizational policies and practices that can be difficult to change. But if you talk with people who have been excluded from your room and listen to their stories, you can usually find at least one barrier you can begin to dismantle with the help of like-minded allies. But first, you have to notice who isn't there.
round about my sophomore, junior year of college to complete one of my religious studies requirements, I opted to take a course on an introduction to Islam. I was fascinated by the religion and I wanted to learn as much as I could about it. And so I sat in class week after week with a textbook that had been written by a Western non-Muslim person and a class taught by a Jesuit priest. There was no actual Muslim first-hand content that I was receiving through the book or the teacher at all. And I might not have thought anything of it at the time, seeing as I occupied some of the same circles of identity as both a textbook author and the teacher. If it weren't for my friend Sophia sitting two rows over, Sophia was a Muslim of Indian descent, and I could see class after class that she was getting more and more agitated by what was being taught. I asked her on the way out of the door one day what the matter was, and she said, there's so much, there's so much that they're just not getting right. It's almost right, but it's just not quite my experience of my own faith. And so she started to talk about the differences between her experience and what we had heard in class that day. And that turned into every couple of classes or so, sitting outside on the quad, eating our lunches, and getting the debrief from an actual Muslim about what we were learning in our Introduction to Islam class. I might not have questioned what I was learning in that moment if it wasn't for the fact that I was able to hear her story, her lived experience of the religion we were learning about. Now this experience of mine, it's not a unique story, at least the beginning of that story of, of reading a textbook not written by someone connected to the community, of being taught a class by someone who knew what they had studied in books but hadn't necessarily lived the experience of the culture. So many of our encounters with other cultures in this life come through books, come through documentaries that we watch. All of this is very often filtered through the personal lenses of the author who is writing or the filmmaker who is putting out the documentary. Even when we travel to experience other cultures, it is often a curated experience. We take tour packages that have been specially curated to take us through the tourist highlights, to witness a cultural pageantry that might be separated from the real everyday life of the people whose countries and cultures we are coming to visit. We view all of these reframed experiences, then these curated experiences, through another lens of our own lived experience. And as a result, what we have is a, a comfortable encounter with our own still selves still at the center of what is being experienced. It is our own self that sits at the center of what we experience. And at best, maybe we'd file away these new experiences of other cultures under a new category of knowledge that we have amassed, or at worst, 
Based upon our own centered lenses in that experience, we make value judgments as to the goodness or badness or rightness of what we witness in other cultures. No matter how we take in this experience, no matter what we do with it, in all cases we remain somewhat separated from the cultural encounter, from the community encounter, separated a comfortable distance from the lived experience of the subject we are encountering. It is a distance enforced by layers and layers of other people's lenses and personal biases and our own experience and our own tendency to center ourselves within the experiences that we are learning. And the result in the end is a sort of a spiritual segregation, the maintenance of this comfortable distance. This separation that we maintain through all of these lenses, all of this curation of experience, this separation is the opposite of what we conceive of as beloved community. Now, don't get me wrong, it's, it's natural for us to fall into varying and separate communities based on various categories of our being, our race, our social class, our education level, our color, our gender, whatever it may be. And we, as I said a few weeks ago, occupy multiple categories, therefore we occupy multiple communities throughout our lives, several at the same time even. And we do this because as finite creatures, Categorical boundaries are manageable for us and help us feel like we belong somewhere. And that's important. But where we run afoul of the task of building beloved community is when we give in to the human temptation to locate one particular community or other of ours that we belong to at the geographic center of all communities, to place our community at the center of everything and then build a wall around it, a tall fortification, a wall where a permeable boundary should exist. And this absolute hardline centering often leads to communities that define themselves not by who they are, but by who does not belong, by who is out of the group rather than defining themselves by who belongs and how. And it is this out-group categorizing that leads to so many of the exclusionary biases in our culture, racism, sexism, heterocentrism, whatever ism it may be, the ideas that exclude one from the other. And these exclusionary biases lead to all sorts of spiritual and mental and physical violence throughout our history. But the potential for beloved community, we know, exists at the intersections and the abutments amidst all of these myriad communities that we belong to. And so the way that we reverse course from our stubborn self-centrism from the need to center our community at the hub of all things, and the way we begin to make amends for the damage our communities have perpetuated, whether unconsciously or with intent, 
is to assume the permeability of those community borders and to move in the direction of an intentional relationship with the communities that occupy the same space as ours. Not anyone at the center, but in this great cosmic mishmash of all the communities that come together. Moving towards this relationship and the ensuing creative energy that is contained within all of those potential encounters. How do we do this? We begin by asking the question that was laid out by Professor Green in our reading, perhaps the most important question that can be asked when we are building any community. Who is not in the room? Who is not sitting at this table with us, having this conversation with us? Who could be at this table? Who should be at this table? Once you notice who isn't in the room, he writes, and begin to ask why, you can get some very interesting answers. But first, you have to notice who is not there. Who of those who we cannot see in this moment are we building beloved community with? And once we can answer that question, we can start to understand perhaps why they have been excluded from this sense of center we have around ourselves. And how the bounds we place about community and the exclusionary categories may have contributed to that exclusion from the table, from the room. And then once the question of who is not in the room has been addressed, we can begin to rectify the situation by relocating the center of power. Feminist, ed feminist educator and author Bell Hooks in her book, Feminist Theory, From Margin to Center, talks about the theory of moving the center out to the margins in order to shift the balance of power within groups and within communities. She says that in any group, there is always a center with a power defined by who is excluded. And very often the out group that wants to be in that center can only get so close to the center of power before the people at the center knowingly or unknowingly redefined the terms of what power is and how it is accessed. And very often the group that is in power doesn't realize that it is in power or that the effects it has wielding that power for those outside of that center circle. And therefore, it is the responsibility of the people at the center, the people holding on to the power, to move out toward the margins in order to bring them in to recenter the sense of who is inside the group to begin with. We must move out to the margins. We must step out communities at our frontiers where that creative energy is. As we have these conversations and make these plans to build a broad, a beloved community, we make room at the head of the table so that we can give the floor to voices that are often ignored 
or unheard in the process. To hear stories from others, to hear life experiences from others that have not yet been admitted into our consciousness, that have not yet been put down into the communal narrative that we are supposed to be writing together. This recentering, this moving toward the margins, is an important motion. It is important that is the direction we move. Because so often when we sit at the center of power in our communities, we invite people from the outgroups, from the margins, to come inside the center for a bit. But we often expect them to assimilate to the culture of the center all the while working to maintain those of us at the center's sense of comfort. There's that word again. And this, this is the definition of tokenism. It's not truly learning something about the communities that we are in relationship with. Instead of drawing a token into the center and expecting them to assimilate, it is, an imper it is imperative upon us instead to understand ourselves as guests within communities not our own when we are having those encounters on the frontiers. And when that is done, when we have recentered others, then we can begin to hear other communities, other people in their own voices not filtered through other observers, not filtered through our own lenses and our own experiences and our own biases, but voices as they are on their own, telling the stories of their own lived experiences, telling the stories of their hopes and their hurts and their frustrations, and their needs, their needs from their own communities, their needs from our communities in relationship with them, their needs to be part of the beloved community. And if we have succeeded in recentering, in understanding ourselves as guests in another community, we can begin to hear others on their own terms and maybe even resist the temptation to make that judgment call on what we are hearing. Make those judgments that so often devalue what we may perceive as different. This is where it starts. What comes next? What comes out of this hard work of recentering the margins and stepping out to build beloved community? Who knows? That's an answer I don't have today because letting go of our own strict agendas about what we expect beloved community to be is also part of the work of decentering our own sense of power, of moving towards those creative, energetic relationships. Because building beloved community is about those relationships, is about establishing new relationships within all of our myriad communities, 
about strengthening or even repairing existing relationships. And like all relationships, the work is about the process of being in them and maintaining them and not the ends that may come as a result of them. Now, for some of us, this is the definition of uncomfortable. And I understand that completely. I, I like a project with clear goals and outcomes. I like a, a bulleted task list that I can cross items off them as I complete the steps. Not knowing where the work of building beloved community may take us is severely discomforting. But remember that it is our need for comfort that so often drives the sense of separation that exists among us in our communities. And it is in the discomfort and in seeking out the discomfort where we start to find growth, where we truly start to build. And there is much in building beloved community, in recentering the margins, in shifting ourselves off the centers of power. There is much in that that will cause us great discomfort. We will encounter new ways of doing and new ways of being that will threaten our sense of what the status quo is. We will encounter the need to change the way things are for the sake of ending practices and institutions that cause harm to others. We will encounter uncomfortable truths about ourselves and about our communities when we see them reflected in another person's story, in another person's experience of us. But we must, we must be willing to go out and seek that discomfort, to leave the centered place of our comfort for the sake of what might be built in the healing that may follow. We must be willing to seek out beloved community, to leave our comfort zones, because the beloved community will not simply come to us to meet us at our own comfortable center. Now, as a church community, there is much power in the center that we occupy, much power that comes from the majority white population here, from the aggregate wealth we hold together, from the status of our education, from the jobs and positions that we hold in the community, there is a lot of power in the center. And the responsibility that comes with that power is how we leverage it for the sake of something larger. How we move our center towards the margins. How we ask continually who is not in the room with us who needs to be. We put our own sense of self aside to meet another as they are. We have built walls for ourselves here. We worked hard to do so. 
I've been asking for a long time, what's next? Now that we have finished this building project. And I believe it is the intentional going out, seeking to build beloved community that is our next great building project. And that's the question before us. Will we fortify ourselves at the center here? Or are we ready to move out? To seek discomfort? To shift ourselves out of the center? And to build the beloved community we profess? Our offering for the month of February is taken up for our friends at Strong in Nature. Based in Los Alamos, Strong in Nature seeks to help heal and empower survivors of sexual violence through outdoor adventures, online community, and employment opportunities. 100% of each month's collection is given to our charitable partners. Please use the Givelify app from your mobile device or use the link in the service notes below to make your offering. May what you give bring you joy and a deeper relationship with your community.
Friends, may life bless us and keep us. May the light of life shine upon us and out from within us and be gracious to us and bring us peace. For this is the day. This is the one wild and precious life we have been given. So let us all find a way to rejoice and to be glad in it. Go in peace. Dreaming.